from Galatians um, chapter 3 verse 26 on page 1153 in the Bibles in front of you. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather, are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong, as you know. It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What's happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provide the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the, in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, everyone. For all those dads that are uh, struggling along, I'm with you. Mind you, mine are slightly easier than yours, I think. I think they're probably still in bed. Anyway, we're going to pray and we're going to have a look at this uh, very interesting but wonderful passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings in the Lord Jesus. And Father, as we look at your word and think about what it means to be your children, I pray, speaking to our hearts by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you saw the movie Gallipoli. Um, 
who saw the movie Gallipoli. It came out like 33 years ago. It was 1981. I know that because it was the year I did my year 12 at uh, Barker College and they very kindly sent us all off to watch the movie uh, in my final year up at school. And it was a very, very powerful and striking movie as you saw the horror of war uh, and a very confronting final scene as you saw young lives being taken. But there's a very poignant and funny story uh, or incident early on in the story and it really spoke to me about the difference between the Australians and the British in terms of how we view class in the egalitarian and class structure of society and kind of the larrikin spirit of Australians. And there were about three of the Aussie troops there who were the young men, they were privates and corporals, uh, and they're confronted with a British major in Egypt as they're walking along. They're on furlough. Uh, and this British major who's very proper, and he looks at these uh, Aussie, you know, larrikins who are kind of privates and much lower than his class, and he just kind of stands there and looks at them. Chest puffed out, and the Aussies look at him and smile, and he kind of puffs his chest a bit further, and he's trying to point out that he's a officer and he should be saluted. And... Uh, the Aussies look at him and say, are you okay? And he looks back and goes, do you know who I am? And they look at him and go, well, what a pity. This poor man doesn't know who he is. We'll find someone who can help you. <laughs> and off they walk. And the British officer is fuming. And it's a, it's a poignant moment there. And it really does speak about, I think, our larrikin egalitarian spirit in Australia. But it's a very poignant question, though. Do you know who I am? And I want to ask you the question, um, very simple one, who am I? Do you know who you are? I think it's one of the most significant and life-shaping questions that a person can answer. Do we know actually who we are? Who you believe yourself to be will affect you profoundly. And one of the realities of life is that we all struggle in this world for different reasons, but there's one common reason, which is that we have all inherited a fallen nature. We sin. Now, out of that will flow all sorts of things, but one of the realities of our sin is we actually get a distorted view of who we are. It's like looking into a mirror, and you know when you used to go to Luna Park and they'd have kind of the, the thin mirror or the fat mirror and you'd get this warped view of you? Well, the reality is all of us actually don't see who we are properly. Some of us have very poor images of ourselves and we struggle as a result. And you think of some of the things that people struggle with, with eating disorders, um, with very low self-esteem, uh, because they've got a very low self-worth and it comes from a sense of identity which is very low. Others struggle because they've got an overly inflated sense of self-worth and they don't struggle or suffer from it. Other people do suffer from it that they inflict themselves upon. Now, I don't know if you've met people like that. But their sense of self-worth is far, far inflated in terms of actually who they are. And they inflict themselves on people. And the reality is, as Christians, we need to understand ourselves in terms of who God has made us. A life-changing truth is this. I'm not who I say I am. I'm not who you say I am. I'm actually who God says I am. And I want you to think about that as we go through today's message. I'm not who I say I am. I'm not who you say I am. I'm actually who God says I am. 
And what have we been learning here in Galatians? We've been looking at how we are justified or declared righteous and innocent in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been given his spirit so that we can live and serve. And today's message is really about how the gospel now shapes our identity. And I want to look at three questions. Firstly, what actually is our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ? How is our identity obtained? And thirdly and importantly, what is the actual experience of that identity? But firstly, what is our identity? If you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to open up to page 1153. Uh, It's worth saying we're not going to cover all the material here uh, that was read for us by Chris. Particularly the section from verse 8 onwards, you get um, a description of the conflict that is going on between Paul, the Galatian church and those who've come in. And you can see there that Paul has his heart on his sleeve really teaching them, exhorting them, why have you left me for these people who don't love you and who are actually bringing you back into slavery? At the heart of the passage is chapter 4 verse 1 to 6 which we're going to look at. But the beginning of the passage and the verses that preceded it give us a very interesting insight into kind of the conflict of ideas about what is going on and how that affects the Galatians in terms of their identity. And so if you have a look at uh, verse 23 of chapter 3 from the reading from last time we looked at Galatians, it says, Before faith came, you were held prisoners by the law. In chapter 3, verse 24, um, another translation puts it this way, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The NIV reads, um, in verse 24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. And the word there is actually a word for a guardian or a tutor who looks after a young child. And you see, what the um, scripture is saying to us, outside of the Lord Jesus, we are people who are enslaved. And if you look ahead to chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves. And he goes on to talk about how they have now come out of that. But it's a very stark picture about people's identity outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's reminding them, this is who you once were. You were prisoners. You had a guardian who controlled you. You're actually slaves. Now, we don't have chains here. Uh, We don't have slavery here. But the reality is all of us, before we come to Christ, really are enslaved, are in chains to something. Because you see, all of us will have hearts that are given over to something and they can become enslaved by it. Now, a very obvious uh, and very... um, easy one to understand is people can become enslaved to alcohol. It actually can control them. But there's a whole raft of things that people can be enslaved by. Just the need to seek approval can be enslaving of people. The love of money is enslaving. All sorts of things. Power can enslave us. And what Paul says is, uh, when you came to Christ, and have a look at verse 26 of chapter 3, He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. You see, who are we? 
if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is, we are sons of God. That's what our identity is. Now, let me start by explaining that concept because I'm deliberately not translating this as you are sons and daughters. Now, before the women rise up and hit me, and I'm sure most of the women would rightly ask, why not? Uh, Is this just a case of the Bible or Bruce being misogynistic and gender biased? Uh, I'd say no. Uh, There's a particular truth here when he says you are sons of God that we miss if we translate it as being sons and daughters or children of God, though we are that. You see, sometimes uh, when you read scripture and you read translations of the Bible, there's no doubt that there's a gender bias. Now, a classic one, if you look at the Red Pew Bibles, which were translated in 1984, is 1 Timothy 2.6, and it says, Christ died for all men. Now, the reality is, um, Christ died for men and women, boys and girls. He died for all people. And so, when you read the 2011 translation of the NIV, it has actually changed the translation and updated it rightly to Christ has died for all people. In other words... The use of the word there should be gender inclusive, not exclusive, to speak of all humanity. But I want to say it actually shouldn't happen here. In the same way that just as this is a masculine metaphor we're going to look at, there are feminine metaphors that also communicate who we are in Christ. Now, women, um, you might not like being called a son, but men, how do you like being called a bride? Okay? Uh, I don't meet many men who want to put a dress on to walk in for their wedding day. But yet we are called men, brides of Christ. Okay. Now, the metaphor is being used not to say something about our gender, but to communicate something of the reality of the purity and the beauty of Christ that the feminine metaphor of bride picks up. So what's the significance here with being sons? Well, in ancient cultures, uh, and in this particular culture, daughters could not inherit property. So to be a son meant that you were the legal heir, which was a status that was forbidden for women. And in fact, the eldest child would inherit it all. And so there's actually something quite radical and transformative about what Paul is saying here. You see, he knows he's addressing men and women. You see it in the verses that follow. Because he says, in Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. There's no gender bias in terms of coming to Christ. There's an equality there of the sexes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what he's saying is both men and women, when you become a Christian and become in Christ, you're like the firstborn child, male in this culture. You get the full inheritance rights, whether you're male or female. And you see, it actually was a very radical view of gender and humanity that Paul is proclaiming to the people of God. Whether you're a male or a female, Paul was saying, it doesn't matter. There's equality. And what you obtain in Christ in terms of your identity is this. You are now like the firstborn, the most treasured one, the one who is most blessed. So men and women, we are sons and daughters 
of the living God and who we are, we are the ones who inherit, who are adopted and given the full rights of the firstborn. You see, when you don't translate it as just sons, you miss the impact of the enormity of the blessing that is given to both men and women equally. You see, at the centre of the letter really is this chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And this life-altering affirmation, using the metaphor of sonship, what Paul is saying is this, we are God's adopted children and we are heirs that will inherit this enormous blessing. We're adopted into his family, we're given the full rights of the firstborn son and the culture of the day, i.e. we have everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this incredibly privileged position in God's sight as his children. And you see, because of this, um, what has happened is it's not just that he has... um, If I can go back to the uh, pictures. It's not just that he's taken away our chains. He's given us something. He's given us a status, an identity, a blessing. Now, why is it life transforming? I want to put to us that I think most Christians don't live this way. We live knowing, if I can say, that on the left picture, our chains have been removed. Our sin has been forgiven. But yet we struggle to really believe that we are completely loved and accepted as a son. And so... Well, how we relate to God is often like this. Um, when you read your Bible in the morning or pray or even come to church, do you do it thinking, I must do this to please God? Or do you pick up your Bible in the morning and think, wow, God is my Father. He wants to speak to me and I want to hear His voice this morning as I read His Word. And as I pray, I want to commune and spend time with my Father in Heaven who knows me or loves me? Or is it when you pray you think, I just must pray, I should pray because that's what I should do? You see, when you say, I must do these things out of obligation, we're living still as if we're a slave or a hired hand to God. Not actually his beloved child, his son, his daughter. See, how is is our... Oh, what's happened there? How is our identity obtained? Have a look at chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. You see, our identity is obtained objectively through what Christ did historically, if I can use those words. You see, what Paul is saying is God has sent his son into the world historically. He was born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. In other words, there's something that's taken away from us. Redemption, the price is paid. We are forgiven and there's something that's given to us 
we receive the full rights of sons. Now that word there, the full rights of sons, links to the concept of sonship. You see, it's one word. And it's a word that was used if you had a wealthy but childless benefactor in the ancient world. And what that wealthy person could do with their wealth if they had no children, they could look at one of their slaves and they could say to the slave, actually I'm going to adopt you into the family and I'm going to give you the inheritance so that you are no longer a slave but you now have the full rights of being my child. And you see, that's what Christ gives us. He takes something away from us our sin, our shame, our guilt and then he gives to us with the other hand the blessing of the full rights of his family members. It's incredible. We have the full rights as sons and as daughters in Christ. That's who we are. I wonder when you wake up in the morning, if I can say it again, and you pick up your Bibles and you read. How do you relate to God? As you come in here today, how do you relate to God? The way you will relate to God very much is shaped by how you see yourself and your identity. And many Christians struggle to understand that they actually are God's children, beloved. Which leads me to the third point. How is our identity experienced? How do we experience being sons and daughters of the living God? Well, that's the work of the Spirit. Have a look at verse 6. It's interesting. When you look at verse 4 and you look at verse 6, there's a parallel phrase here. God sent. And you see, it's interesting because you see in verse 4, God sent his Son into the world. But note where he sends the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit, His Spirit, is sent into our hearts. And you see here the incredible, if I can say, complexity and the wonder and yet the simplicity of who God is in Trinity. God sends His Son into the world. God sends His Spirit into our hearts. And then you see in verse 6, the Spirit of God is actually the Spirit of the Son. Have a look a little bit later. But let me read to you verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now you are sons, why? Because you've believed the Gospel. Because you've said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust you, I follow you. And you see, we take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by claiming him. A promise is offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of forgiveness of sins. And how do you take hold of that? You claim it for yourself. Ask yourself the question, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I claim that and I claim the status that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know it objectively and historically that there is one who has come from heaven for me and he's paid my price. He's been raised from the grave. He offers me life and forgiveness and I claim that. Are you with me? It's an external, it's an external objective reality that confers on you an objective status. 
you are children of the living God. But you see, there's more. Because the Holy Spirit is not external, he's internal, he's in our hearts. And what you see here, he's not claimed, he's experienced. It's not objective, it's subjective. It's not known by cognition. We understand the promises of God, we claim them for ourselves. It's actually understood through intuition. You know it by experience that this is real. You see, when you're struggling as a Christian, one of the things we need to do is actually take hold of the promises of God and claim them for ourselves. And you can wake up and you know that you've been away from God and you actually need to claim the promises of God to help you come back. God still loves me. God does still forgive my sins. I need to take hold of that and come back to him. But you see, there's also the experience of the Spirit that helps us. You see, we do struggle in life as Christians to follow Christ, don't we? As you go out into the world, you get beaten down with the messages that come. The devil will put temptation before your face every day. We struggle with our own weak hearts and weak faith to take hold of what Christ does. And the Spirit comes to help us understand our identity and experience it. Not just know it in our hearts. You see, our sin will affect us. But the Spirit of God comes into our life so that we know with a certainty that we are accepted. The Holy Spirit is given to us in God's grace so that we don't just know the reality of being redeemed and adopted as God's children in our heads, but we also experience the great reality of being adopted and accepted in our hearts. If I can repeat what I just said, we struggle to deeply believe that we are accepted and loved and that our eternal inheritance has been won for us freely, purely by grace. And he, the Holy Spirit, is given to us purely by grace to root that home, that reality, in an experience of his love that communicates actually we really are loved and adopted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes so that we might experience the Father's love, adopted as his children. Let me give you a couple of illustrations to this. Um, think with me about, firstly, a biblical illustration. It comes from the story of the prodigal son. Now, do you know the story? Uh, it's mo- probably the most famous parable that Jesus taught of the prodigal or lost son. He basically takes his money in a shameful way from his father, his inheritance before his father has died, treats his father as if he had died. He's as good as dead. He runs off, squanders it on wild, sinful living, gets to the bottom, he's blown his money, And he basically wants to come home. He comes to his senses and realises that he's been a complete ass. He confesses his sin to God and he basically comes back in great shame to his father. And the climax of the story at that point is that the son is talking to himself about how he will present himself to the father. He knows he's sinned. He's made his, uh, if I can say, apologies to God. And he's just hoping that the father might accept him like a hired servant back into the household. And he's saying, you know, maybe maybe dad will take me back as one of the workers. Because the last thing in his mind is that his father will reinstate him to the position he once had as a loved son. 
And do you remember the scene? He's walking up the road to the household, rehearsing his lines, and the father sees him, and in what was a shameful thing in his culture, lifts his dress or robe and runs to his son, which no dignified Middle Eastern man would have done, and just embraces him. And do you remember what else he does? He kisses him. And you see, what is the father doing? He's showing him and helping the son experience, no, you are not coming back as a hired slave or a hired hand in my household. You are forgiven and you are welcomed back in. My son was lost, he is now found, and he embraces him and kisses him so that he knows that he is loved. And you see, the work of the Spirit in adoption is God, by his Spirit, working in our hearts, so that we know the embrace and the kiss of the Father. Now, I know I'm a male conservative Anglican minister talking to you about feeling God, okay? But you see, this is the reality profoundly that this verse is talking about. The experience of the Christian life is not just claiming truth, though we need to do that and it's an important part of growing in Christ is understanding what Christ has done for us. It's actually having the Spirit of God work in our heart and mind so that we know him. Let me give you a second illustration. This one's from an old Puritan, Thomas Goodwin. In speaking of this reality of God adopting us as his children and the Spirit working in our lives so we experience his love, he said, picture a father walking along a road with his young boy hand in hand. Now, that's a very common sight that you'll see here at St Matthews. Lots of dads here today have got the children and they're holding on to them. And imagine dad has got the young boy and he walks out of church and the little boy knows that the man who's holding his hand is his father and that he loves him. He knows that. But suddenly the father stops and picks up the boy into his arms and just embraces him and kisses him. Now, the boy is actually no more a son when he's being embraced and kissed than what he was before. He was always the father's son. But what has happened? The father's action has not changed the status of the boy. He's still the father's son. But oh, the difference in the enjoyment of that status and that relationship. You see, isn't that why, as dads and as mums, we pick our kids up and hug them and kiss them? Why do we do that? We don't just say to them, I love you. We want them to experience that and we embrace them and we kiss them and hug them. It's no different with our Heavenly Father. He pours his spirit into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Not you are some distant God out there. The word Abba is a word of intimacy, like a child with his father. And this is the experience of adoption. And this is the experience of knowing God. It is profound. It's personal. We feel it. Now let me add a rider. 
there is no doubt sin warps our emotions and we must never base our relationship with God purely on how we feel. But yet sometimes the love of God can overwhelm us with feelings of how much he loves us. And as dangerous as it is to base your relationship with God purely on how you feel, it's equally as dangerous to have no feelings. We are not minds relating by cognition to a great idea. There is a living God who has made us as people and who calls us his children. And the way he embraces us and loves us is by his spirit. You see, this is the reality of being born again. And there is no other version of Christianity. This is what the reality of the Christian faith is. We have a saviour we know and trust and it's his spirit that is poured into our hearts. And I know it's dangerous to talk this way but this is actually what's being offered by God through his spirit. It's what's being offered by the Apostle Paul. And the important thing to know is it's for our benefit. You see, who are you? You're a child of God if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is given so that you might know that deeply and not struggle with insignificance and not struggle with self-worth and not struggle with an over-inflated ego. You're a child of God. What does this experience look like? Well, two things. First is passion. There's a word there crying out. You see, the Spirit of the Son... The Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ comes into our hearts and he cries out. And the word in Greek is kratso. Uh, it's not just kind of pray. It's more like shout. Now, I, I use that to emphasise because, you see, there's this great sense of passion that comes when the Spirit of God enters our life. Uh, we don't have to claim our status in Christ. We don't have to say... I'm accepted, there's a reality of which we actually just know he died for us. We know that we are justified. We know we are loved. And we can cry out with joy to our Father in heaven. Like a child running to see their parents when he hasn't seen them for a while. Mummy, Daddy, I love you. This is the reality of the Spirit's work in our hearts. And you see, it's not that the work of the Spirit is just to get us to scream. You sometimes hear some strange things that people talk about in the name of the Holy Spirit. No, it's that we pray. We pray, Abba, Father. There's an intimacy in praying with God. We know he's listening. There is a freedom and sense of access to the throne room of God. And so we're humbled because we actually know we're in the presence of God. We're joyful because we know he loves us. We are confident because we know we're his children and we're bold because we know he is going to listen and answer. And you see, this is the secret to growth in the Christian faith, I think, the assurance that comes into our lives as the Spirit of God takes all that Christ has done for us and applies it to our hearts and minds and we start to know and experience God's overwhelming love and joy and blessing in our lives. 
And so as we finish, let me stop and ask a very important question. Do you know God this way? That Jesus has died for you and that because of him you are accepted and that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus. You see, how do you have the Spirit? Well, actually, the interesting thing is you don't ask for the Spirit. You don't ask, God, I want to experience you. Have a look at verse 6 again. Who is the Spirit? He's the Spirit of the Son. And so if you want that experience, what you need to do is actually look to the Son and meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ and reflect on all he's done for you and believe it and pray. Help me understand the glory of all you've done, Lord Jesus. Fill me with your confidence and the assurance that comes from what you've done for me. Help me to know the reality of my sins washed away. And pray to the Father, Father, help me to know you deeper. I want to follow your Son deeper and deeper and more and more. Fill me with the Spirit of the Lord Jesus so I can know this reality. You see, it's not experience for experience sake. It's the experience of knowing the Father through his wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus, and being filled with his Holy Spirit. And friends, if you need today to come to him, I encourage you. At the end of the service, I'd love to pray for people who would like to know more of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ working in their life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for all the blessings we have in the Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts and minds with a knowledge of him. And I pray, Father, pour out your spirit upon us so that we might have joy and assurance and certainty and that we might cry out, Abba, Father, our hearts filled with joy. We know who we are. We're your children, Lord. And we want to serve you joyfully and faithfully until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.